Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in this week for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, she is a sharp-tongued consultant who's worked for some of the most high-profile Republicans in America. But she's not afraid to pick a fight with her own party. Liz Mayer is here. We're going to talk to her about her ongoing feud with Central Valley Congressman Devin Nunes and why she's still in the GOP despite her distaste with Trump. And to start with, perhaps, why she thinks California Governor Gavin Newsom could be actually more vulnerable to this recall attempt than most people think. Liz Mayer, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks so much for having me. So... We just saw, I think just today you posted a column about Gavin Newsom and his potential vulnerability um, in this recall election. Why? What, what are you what are you looking at that makes you think that all of the chattering class could be wrong? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, at the end of the day, I should stipulate that, as I said in the column, I do think that he will survive recall. I just think he's going to survive it by a much narrower margin than what he wants and what a lot of people are predicting based on what I'm seeing with the polling. Um, I would urge people to go look at the piece because I've gone through a huge amount of data in compiling it. And um, we, we would be doing this interview for like three hours. probably. If I <laughs> fair play, fair and play. <laughs> much, much as I'm grateful for everybody listening to what I have to say. I mean, nobody wants to listen to that degree. Uh, even my husband isn't that much of a captive audience. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I would urge people to go take a look at it, but you know, the bottom line is, um, given that California has moved in a much more democratic direction than the last time that there was a recall election, which of course was with governor Gray Davis, you know, Gavin Newsom doesn't actually have nearly the strong support going into this that he probably would like. Um, And if you go and you actually compare the polling from 2003 to what we're seeing now, that becomes fairly obvious. Um, You know, Gray Davis definitely did have some bad numbers. I'm not saying that he was walking into his own recall election uh, in a real sweet spot. He certainly was not. Um, But when you go and you take a look at, you know, the 2003 field poll that was done, um, field obviously is no longer around. Uh, Now we've got PPIC as sort of the best pollster in California to replace field. But when you do go look at that field poll and then you take a look at what PPIC found when it polled, I think, in March of this year, uh, it's pretty clear that Newsom does have some vulnerabilities here. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of the other things that I think makes that so is, you know, I I really always have considered working on California issues um, while field was around. I mean, they pretty much hit the nail on the head. I feel like just about everything that I ever worked on with uh, in California that they pulled on. Um, But, you know, if you're looking at it, you still can go and you can find in their polling and in other polls from 2003 
a little bit of a gap between um, the support that they were showing for the recall and what ultimately happened. And mm-hmm. So I think that that's got to be a concern for Newsom, too, because, you know, this isn't happening in a year and in an election where you automatically get that super high, just as a given Democratic turnout who will vote for, you know, anybody with a D next to their name um, right. in any context. Um, you know, and probably, as you saw in 2003, you're probably going to see recall proponents overperform their polling a little bit. That, well, that's what that's what the history lends lends one to believe here. And so that that's a concern because the gap that he's got between people who support recall, recall and oppose recall just really isn't as big as what he'd like it to be. Right. Well, I'm curious kind of how you weigh those two things, right? Support for the recall and then support for the governor himself. I mean, as you mentioned, support for the recall is higher now than it was at this point in 2003. But Newsom is polling, what, 20, 30 points ahead of where Gray Davis was at this point. How are you weighing those two things at this point in the recall process? What matters more? Well, I think they both matter. And that's how I come to the conclusion that unlike Davis, Newsom probably will survive this. It's just that I don't think it's going to be super clean. I mean, at the end of the day in 2018, he was elected with what, 62 percent of the vote. I don't think he's going to come out of this with anything that looks like that 62 percent number. I guess that's kind of my bottom line here. But, you know, I think I think there are a couple of other interesting data points that I throw out in the article that are worth people looking at. One is that when you poll and you ask people if they just want a change of governor in 2022, like that number is not a good number for Gavin Newsom. What comes Mm -hmm. back on that is definitely something that's a problem for him. And when you look at the issues that look like they're dragging him down, there are issues that are really hard to solve and issues that frankly can take off and spiral in a very negative direction very quickly and not, he, he may not have the capacity to do much about it. So the things I'm thinking about there You know, obviously in California, homelessness and housing affordability are huge, huge issues. Um, They're very complex and intricate issues, as we all know. Uh, People have been working on trying to solve them for a long time. Um, I feel like there are some solutions that I see out there, but they're very politically fraught, and that makes it difficult for them to institute. You know, if those are numbers that are dragging him down, it's not like Gavin Newsom can just wave a magic wand and next week suddenly housing affordability and homelessness are solved across the state. That's not how that's going to work, right? So if those are drags and liabilities for him, there's not necessarily a ton that he can do there. Um, I know he has been, you know, sort of trying to leverage the favorable budget situation to try to buy himself some favor and compensate for those things. But we'll see how far that gets him. That may or may not work. The other yeah. thing that, it, that, that, that I hate to say is an issue because I am very much on the criminal justice reform side of the equation, but I think it's pretty clear when you look at California polling, there are people who are concerned about rising crime rates, right? And as we've seen in the past, I mean, crime is something where when it becomes an issue, it can become an issue really, really quickly. And there's not necessarily an immediate solution to that. And if it is, it's oftentimes a local patchwork. It's not something that can necessarily be done top down by the governor. So I think these are really difficult issues for him. I think that there are issues that probably do disproportionately impact a lot of Latino voters in California. That's a huge voting block, of course, but it's also a voting block where his numbers have gotten softer with them over time. So, you know, I think, again, you put it all together. I think he does survive recall, but he doesn't survive it in great form. And then he's immediately got to turn around and run again in 2022. And if I were his advisors, that's what I'd be really worried about. 
Oh, that's interesting because some of the kind of like common wisdom is that he could end up stronger if he beats this in 22. But I want to ask you about a, a comparison. We've heard a lot about Ron DeSantis is a rising star in Florida, right? And of course, I- I've actually mm-hmm. done a bunch of reporting on this around like the comparison between Florida and California. And I mean, yes, Florida is not done as badly as some public health experts feared, but you know, they still have a much higher death rate there, a much lower vaccination rate. Um, and yet like he is sitting pretty, whereas Newsom's getting dragged for this. I'm just curious, like what you make of that. If this is just political opportunism or like the, the, the way the parties differ in this time or like, how, how do you make sense of that? Well, I think they're very different states. Um, but yes, in terms of how the internal party mechanisms operate, they're different. Um, my perception is that Ron DeSantis has a much stronger hold over the party organization in Florida than probably what Newsom does over the party organization in California. Um, you know, DeSantis is a fairly consensus Republican for Florida Republicans. There aren't a lot of people who hate him. There are a lot of people who love him. You look at California. I mean, the Democratic constituency in California is very big, right? It's a deep blue state. But with that said, that also means that there can be quite a lot of variation in that. So, you know, not everybody there is necessarily a Newsom Democrat. Not everybody was necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. a Jerry Brown Democrat, although I, I do think he 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 probably had a lot of cachet where Newsom didn't. Um, you know, you probably do see still, uh, you know, a rising sort of um, Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialist wing. Um, that is obviously different to the part of the party that Newsom comes from. You also still have some vestiges of conservative Democrats in that state, whereas in a lot of other deep blue states, they've kind of been run out. And so I think that fractiousness probably doesn't help him. But also, in some respects, I think the guy just kind of has bad luck, right? Yeah. He has a tendency to be... He has a tendency to be the guy who kind of like steps in it and he can't figure out how to recover from it. Like the French laundry thing was really an unforced error. I think everybody recognizes that. But he really hasn't been able to put that to bed. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Ron DeSantis just doesn't seem to get himself into quite those kinds of pickles. He gets himself into pickles where he gets bashed really hard by progressives and by the media. But, you know, if you're a Republican, getting bashed by progressives in the media is kind of what you want. It right. strengthens you, whereas Newsom's kind of getting bashed by everybody, which is basically not what you want. <laughs> yeah. So I think they're <laughs> well, I mean, they're in very different. They're in very different environments. Totally. You know? they, totally. They just are. And they're. Yeah. Well, Liz, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on uh, to talk about the the recall is you have worked on a recall yourself in the past. You were an advisor to then Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker in 2012 when he faced a recall attempt and defeated it. How would you compare that campaign in Wisconsin to what you're seeing? I know it's early, but to what you're seeing uh, in California this year, because in some ways, I think that's maybe a more apt comparison than than Davis for Newsom. Uh, we certainly haven't had a ton of recalls in this country, so it's hard to say what the most apt is, right? But it's certainly possible. We'll find that. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, there are some significant differences here. Um, I think one of the big ones is in both instances, you had this undercurrent of fairly deep parental anger at certain sort of institutions and organizations impacting state government, right? Um, So in the case of Newsom, we're looking at a situation where you have a lot of parents who are still very up in arms about the remote schooling situation, right? And what we've been doing about education during the pandemic. Um, In Wisconsin, we had a lot of parents who were very upset 
about uh, what, how their school, how their kids' education was impacted by Act 10, which was the, the budget bill um, that basically uh, impacted collective bargaining and pissed off all the teachers' unions. Um, I think the difference there was that in this case, Newsom is seen as being more aligned than not with people who are keeping kids out of school, whereas in Wisconsin, Walker was seen as very much not aligned with people who were seen as keeping kids out of school. So the situation that we had in Wisconsin, and it did make a difference, I want to say it accounted for like five, minimum five to 10% of, of sort of Walker's support, hmm. was we had a lot of parents who had been forced to take sick leave, um, unpaid time off, all of these kinds of things, because their teachers basically closed the schools, didn't teach, and went to Madison and went to the Capitol to protest and demonstrate against Scott Walker. Um, so in that case, you know, you had this undercurrent of very deep parental anger that I think Democrats hadn't fully appreciated. And that really accrued to Walker's benefit. Um, in California, I suspect you've got a similar undercurrent, but I think that that's going to be pointed more at Newsom and not working in his favor. So I think that's one thing that's interesting. Um, you know, another thing is Californians obviously have had the experience of doing a recall before of a governor. Um, Wisconsin had not. And, you know, I think once you've had the experience of doing a recall, you know, once you've done anything once, you can kind of imagine doing it again, whether it's zip lining, skydiving, you know, the first time that you... The first time the first time you ride a bike, you can imagine getting on the bike and riding it again. Right. So um, Wisconsin didn't have that. And I think another important part of what happened in that recall was we did actually have people who had not voted for Scott Walker when he was first elected, who then voted in our favor on the recall because they just felt that it wasn't right to cut the guy off midterm. That just wasn't something that was done. Wisconsin hadn't done that. That wasn't their experience. People weren't comfortable with it. Whereas in California, you know, people may decide on the merits that they don't want to vote to recall the guy or that they've decided that recalls are a bad idea. But the state has had the experience of actually doing it before. So I suspect that the sort of mentality and psychology of voters is going to be a little bit different. At the end of the day, though, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if the percentage that, you know, Walker won and stayed up by looks very similar to what Newsom ends up winning and staying up by. I mean, if you look at the polling right now, that's totally conceivable. Um, but, you know, Walker's margin was not huge. Uh, we were perfectly satisfied with it. It was basically what we anticipated the whole way through based on what we were seeing. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. another I think another difference is, you know, in Wisconsin, um, obviously, when we were going into it, we knew that then, you know, if he survived, he was going to be running for reelection in 2014. So we had a little bit longer there, whereas in California, like I say, he's got to do this right back to back. And if he wins decisively on the recall, I do agree that that could help him a lot in 2022. But if he comes out with like 52 percent of the vote or something like that could be a real drag going into 2022. So I just think. You know, the psychology of the campaign teams is also going to be a little bit different. And ultimately, that does have an effect on how candidates perform. All right. We're going to take a quick short break now. When we return, we'll keep talking to GOP consultant Liz Mayer. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati, and we're talking with Liz Mayer. As you just heard, she helped Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker beat back a recall attempt in 2012. She's also consulted with Carly Fiorina, Rick Perry, and many others. Um, so, Liz, let's let's switch gears here a little bit. Some folks may be familiar with your name because of uh, a battle that has been playing out both in the courts and on Twitter um, with Devin Nunes, a congressman from the Central Valley. Um, I, I don't even know where to start with this. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what happened and why you are now being sued by a congressman for essentially what you see as exercising your free speech rights? Uh, yes. Well, I mean, the way that I characterize this is that I, I did exercise my free speech rights. And uh, I, I was not particularly nice to Devin Nunes in doing that. Um, I would also hasten to note that uh, being nice to people is not um, any sort of legal requirement in this country, and, and being mean to them doesn't necessarily put you afoul of the law in any way, shape, or form. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> well, I know. Um, yes, I, I mean, I, I feel like if that were the case, uh, you know, Devin Nunes shouldn't be the person out there with the biggest problem with me. Probably the legions of people who support Manchester United on the internet. Those people should definitely <laughs> have a bigger issue. But um, in any event, <laughs> moving on from talking about premiership football. Yeah. So Devin Nunes, um, it's been over two years now. He has, he launched uh, in 2019, two lawsuits against me um, in the state of Virginia uh, totaling $400 million that he's seeking for me in damages. Um, and very clearly from my perspective, I mean, I would urge people to go read up on the lawsuits. Again, this is the kind of topic where were I to really break it down, we would be here for three hours. Um, <laughs> people can go to law school. People could go to law school if they like that kind of content. Director's um, cut. But, yeah. uh, yes, <laughs> yes. But, um, you know, in, from my perspective, this very clearly is an effort uh, by a sitting government official to use litigation as a cudgel to stifle my free speech. And more than that, not just my free speech, but if he were successful in this, the precedent that it would set 
would have the effect of stifling basically everybody's free speech, potentially. Um, you know, if you if you look at why the First Amendment was written um, and the thought process behind it and what it's supposed to do, James Madison, father of the Constitution, was very clear in saying that in America, under our system, the censorial power rests in the people over the government, not the other way around. And so here what you have is a complete inversion of that principle and that idea. And you have somebody who is a sitting congressman, a member of the United States government, trying to stifle my free speech and trying to sue me into shutting up. Well, um, I mean, which, you know, I think why I think you... most people who know me would tell me that it's very difficult to get me to shut up. And <laughs> this is, you know, we've established I that, think I think. Going... <laughs> yes, I don't think this is going to be particularly fruitful. So, yeah, that that's that's the summary of what's going on. I mean, yeah. why do you think Nunes has reacted like this? I mean, he doesn't have a monopoly uh, among Republicans or even California Republicans uh, or on, anybody really on, on getting criticized. Why? I mean, you're not the only person he's gone after uh, in the courts. Why do you think it is that he's chosen this way to react to this criticism? Goodness, I don't know. You know, if I if I could uh, swap like a twenty five thousand dollar paycheck for having like full insight for like a week long period into the workings of Devin Nunez's his mind. Um, that's a that's a proposition I would seriously consider. I think it would be a fascinating exploration. Um, unfortunately, I, I don't have great insight into it. You know, the only the only uh, sort of assessment that I'm able to offer is based on what I see and what he's done. Um, and uh, I, I'm not really immediately clear on that. Um, you, I mean, obviously, you know, my hope is that he'll reconsider it at some point for sure. What set it off? Like, was there a specific thing you went after him for that you talked about that? I mean, it's just it's it seems kind of random that he's been so defensive to, to Guy's point. Well, again, you you would have to ask him. I mean, I I don't know what goes on in his mind, and I don't know what his thought process. Open, is. oh, standing um, invitation, I mean, yeah, Devin Nunes been, to come on political him. breakdown. All right, well, let me ask you this, Liz. What has yeah. the impact been on you? Because this is I don't know if we make clear to to our listeners, but you are a Republican consultant. This is a Republican. He was very close to Donald Trump. He has you know some power in the party. What's the impact been like personally? Like, what what do your kids think of this? Like, how has this impacted your family? Um, well, so I think uh, the, the most immediate answer that I can give to that is um, it, it is definitely an interesting thing to have to explain to your, I guess he was then about five years old, your five-year-old son, oh, wow. that you are you are not, in fact, a fake cow on the Internet. Um, <laughs> I think that's. I, I think when we uh, when we become parents, everybody expects that they're going to have some weird conversations right. that they just never imagined happening. I think particularly those of us with boys, that's true. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'll say when I was sort of reading what to expect when you're expecting, um, having to clarify for your child that you're not a fake bovine, um, that, that didn't register <laughs> as something I needed to prepare myself for. So um, that has been one effect for sure. Um, you know, I think in some respects, it's it's been kind of surreal. Um, you know, it, it's it's not it's not something that I expected to have happen in my career. Um, but, you know, one thing that I am uh, weirdly a little bit grateful for, not not that I'm saying, hey, Devin, please continue the lawsuits. Uh, I love it. Um, but one thing that I am grateful for is, you know, I've always been a libertarian um, and I'm strongly, strongly supportive of very maximalist interpretations of civil liberties. And 
this has given me an opportunity to speak to people about why broad and expansive free speech rights really are important. And they're not just important to me, Liz Mayer, so that I can, you know, trash talk uh, Manchester United on Twitter, like I say, um, you know, or, or any number of other things or people that I trash talk routinely. Um, they really are important for average everyday citizens who don't necessarily have the visibility that I do. Um, being able to hold their government accountable and criticize their government officials, which mm -hmm. is a very American thing to do. Um, it's really very fundamental to our system of liberties and our form of democracy. And so, uh, you know, I, did, I wouldn't have anticipated, um, you know, if you told me five years ago, hey, you're going to get sued for $400 million and it's going to afford you an opportunity to do something that you think is really important. Um, I probably would have laughed at you and then immediately called the psych ward. Um, <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, as somebody who does believe very, very deeply in the importance of civil liberties and sees that as something that really positively marks our system out from basically that of any other country that you can name on earth. You know, I think that that has been one good thing that's flowed from it. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nunes in a lot of ways is representative of the party in its just total turn to, to loyalty uh, to Donald Trump. It's clear at this point, this is his party. So I, I guess I'm wondering what's keeping you in the tent at this point? Well, the short version of that, and I've said this before, and, and I argue with uh, never Trumpers who have left the party all the time about this is, you know what, I was a member of this party, and I was loyal to it before Donald Trump ever showed up. So, you know, I was here first, and I'm not giving up my seat. That's my view. Um, but, you know, on a more practical level, parties are full of infighting. I mean, we just talked about this with regard to the California Democratic Party and how much philosophical rift exists there. That may be different in terms of scope and extent to what you see in the Republican Party right now or what you saw in 2016. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's actually important if people believe in something and they believe in certain fundamental tenets that really are associated with one party or another, where they have disagreements, I think it's really important for people to kind of double down and engage and hash those things out and try to win the fight. I don't really think nothing in my experience has ever told me that walking away is a good idea or that that's effective. And, you know, I was very heavily involved in the marriage equality fight. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was part of a group called Young Conservatives for the Freedom to Marry, um, you know, consulted for Freedom to Marry, did a lot of work with Freedom to Marry. And I'll tell you, you know, back in those days, there were a lot of people who were saying, oh, but if you're a pro-gay marriage Republican, you got to leave and become a Democrat. Well, you know what? The fact that we didn't leave and the fact that we hung around and made our case, I think, is a great deal of why the Supreme Court was in a position to take the decision that it did in, the, in several cases, but obviously, finally, in the Obergefell case. Um, and I think, ultimately, that's a lot of the reason why now, you know, I mean, you think back to 2016. Even in 2016, when that was still a much more recently decided issue, you really didn't have a lot of debate going on on the presidential debate stage among Republicans about, you know, should we have like a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage? What should be done about same-sex marriage? Like it just wasn't a discussion point. And part of the reason it wasn't was because Republicans like me stayed, fought our ground and establish that position as something that was normal and acceptable within the Republican Party. So that, that's been my experience, yeah. and that's what I intend to keep doing. Well, 
I'm just curious. We only have a few minutes left, but I'm curious. I mean, we have in California a very wide mix, right? You have Kevin McCarthy, who's been loyal to mm-hmm. Trump. David Valadeo, I think, is the only Republican congressman in California who voted for this new commission to uh, investigate January 6th. You have a, a cast of characters challenging Newsom who have varying sort of allyships to the Trump uh, kind of base. I mean, how do you think that this is playing out. Does it feel, I mean, I know you don't live here anymore, but does it feel different in a place like California, you think, than elsewhere? Or is this just sort of where the party's at? Uh, I think I think in California, Republicans have obviously taken so much of a beating over the last 10 to 15 years that, um, you know, the rifts that you see and sort of the struggles, the extent of the struggles that people are dealing with to form something that looks like a winning coalition you know, it obviously appears to be sort of what we see elsewhere, but on steroids, right? Um, I think a lot of other places are probably going to have to go through this. I would also say, though, it is interesting to me, well, I certainly don't think that it's going to be easy for Republicans to start winning again in California. We did see some signs that indicate that there is a way to do it if you look at the 2020 election. Um you know, we did see some Republicans win in some congressional districts that were tight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you had, uh, you know, one Republican pick up in the state Senate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have seen when you look at ballot initiatives, you have seen the conservative side of ballot initiatives prove capable of winning. So I guess I would say, you know, I I wouldn't say Democrats shouldn't be comfortable, but I would say in politics, it's a stupid idea for anybody to take support for granted and to assume that their current situation is going to persist forever. And so, you know, for Democrats, that means that they probably need to watch it just a little bit more than maybe what they have. But it also means for Republicans, there are some opportunities for some gains if they do things right. But I, I would say if they want to look at what's working my argument would be take a look at people like Young Kim, take a look at people like Michelle Steele, um, who I think have a radically different interpretation of what it means to be a Republican to what a lot of people who are currently sitting in Washington, D.C. do. Yeah. Well, um, we, and frankly, I, th- I think it's one that's going to be more appealing. Well, Michelle Steele actually came on our show, so that's a difference. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> and to your point, they all work for us, Democrat, Republican, Independent. All right. Thank you, Liz Mayer. We so appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Special thanks to Guy Marzarati for both producing and co-hosting today. Scott will be back next week. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan tobin Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, and Erica Aguilar. I'm Guy Marzarati. You can see what I'm up to on Twitter. I'm at Guy Marzarati. And you can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And maybe go follow Liz as well because she's got a fiery Twitter feed. Have a great one. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading!
Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.